talk to you now about something that, to be honest with you, I've got a little bit of a bee in my bonnet about. What I'm going to express now is not a popular opinion with others. And there are many people who are going to disagree completely, probably, with what I'm about to say. But I still want to say it anyway, even if it clashes with, with what most people would think or possibly even experience. And, and it's all to do with social media. Now, social media in all its many forms has been around for quite a long time now. And magicians have been, as I would see it, slightly brainwashed into thinking that it is the panacea for all marketing ills. In other words, that if you spend a lot of time doing posts on Facebook and keeping your Twitter account lively uh, and things like this, that you will reap the benefits. You will create lots of contacts and those contacts will turn into shows. And I'm not sure that's true. Social media is a bright, shiny object that is very appealing. There are a lot of people out there who believe in it passionately. But I think the confusion comes here is who these people are and why they are passionate about it. Some of the most passionate people I've heard talk about social media are people who give help to other people with their social media accounts. Well, they would say it's great, wouldn't they? Because that's what their business is. I mean, I'm not saying they don't genuinely believe it is great, but nevertheless, they do have a vested interest. Now, I'm not saying that all social media is rubbish and doesn't have a place. Of course it does. In, in circumstances particular, I think in social circumstances where groups of people want to keep in contact, clubs want to create closed Facebook groups so they can communicate with each other. I think it's fabulous. Uh, and I, I would, I'm sure that magic has been... Um, in, increasingly helped by people being able to contact each other through social media. But what I'm actually talking about here specifically is to do with whether it creates shows. And I don't mean taking Facebook ads. That's not what I mean. I mean just having a Facebook page on which you post. I think they are vanity projects. If they're not just vanity projects, they are actually a time suck. You can spend hours and hours and hours posting stuff on Facebook. How many people who then go on to book you have actually read any of it? They might, but how many? I'm not convinced that all the many, many hours that are required to really make an impression with social media, whether that ever gives you a justifiable return. Now, I'm sure there are people out there who say, oh, yes, it does. And it might depend on what field you're in. I mean, I have gradually been shutting down my Facebook. I've shut down Facebook completely, but my social media things. The only one I've kept on, really, is LinkedIn. And that's simply because there are a lot of business contacts that I have on there that I am interested in keeping in contact with. So for me, that one works. I don't post on it very much, but it's there as a form, almost like a database of local businesses. But in every other way, the other social media stuff... Is it really doing magicians any good? Are you really getting more bookings? I could talk about this a lot more, but I'm going to stop there. But if you've got a view on that, let me know. When you send a confirmation for um, a commercial show, do you include a cancellation clause in that? By this, I mean, do you, if the booker for any reason, cancels the booking within 
a week, two weeks, a month, whatever you decide, before the, the, the event was due to take place. If they do that, then they are required to pay, according to your cancellation clause, a percentage of the fee. It might be 25% or 50%, again, whatever you designate. And that when the person accepts the booking, they understand that this will be the case. Do you include one of those? Um, I've, I never have, and I, I have this theory about cancellation clauses that they are in fact an overcomplication and set a slightly unpleasant feel about the person who for the person who you are um, going to entertain, because if they think that well, if I cancel, this guy is going to take money off me, even though he's not done anything it perhaps doesn't set quite the right feel for the type of person that you are. Are you only interested in the money then? You see, in my experience, and I've been, I spent decades doing shows, paid shows, I've had actually very few cancellations. And I think the reason is that, firstly, when people are having an event, they're excited about the event. And when they book entertainment, when they book you to do a show for them, they don't, I think most people, once it's booked and signed and sealed and they know it's set, they're looking forward to their party or their event. They're looking forward to seeing your magic. The last thing in their mind is, well, now, I'm go- now that I've got somebody booked, I think I'm going to look around and see if I can find somebody cheaper so I can cancel the first guy at the last minute. I, I don't think that is in 99.9% of people's minds. The job is done and they just don't think about it until you actually turn up and do the show. So to put a cancellation clause in, it kind of makes them look like, well, of course, if you're going to do the dirty on me, why is this something happens to you regularly? Might be the thought that the booker thinks, oh, that's odd. The other thing is that um, on the few occasions when I have had cancellations, as far as I can judge, they have been for genuine reasons. You know, as I say, people don't book a party with the view of cancelling it or changing it necessarily. But I have had bookings, for instance, for weddings that are booked a couple of years in advance. And in one particular case, uh, it was cancelled a year before the wedding was due to take place because the couple split up. They decided not to get married at all. Now, to me, it would be if it's a year ahead, then probably the cancellation clause wouldn't kick in anyway. But if you did that, so, well, I'm sorry, no, you've cancelled. I want 50 percent of the money. A, are you ever going to get that money out of them? Well, good luck with that. Legally, do you have, although you have a piece of paper on which you said there is a cancellation clause and they've accepted it, are you really going to try and take them to court to enforce it? Is it worth it for the amount of money? I would suggest it isn't. So in that case, if you're not prepared to pursue somebody through the courts, if they if they refuse to pay your cancellation clause, why do you have a cancellation clause? It's not worth it, is it? The way I've always worked is uh, I, I don't get paid on the day. I get paid um no later than seven days before the party or event is due to take place. And I get paid in full. No, irrespective of the type of show, that's what happens. Those are my terms and conditions. If, for any reason, within that week after they've paid me, there is a cancellation, I actually return the money. I would return the money. Um, because that late, I would suggest, there are good reasons. They may have fallen on, on financial hard times, and they just simply now can't afford you. And I have sympathy for that. You know, I mean, I don't want to lose the booking, but I'm not going to get the booking anyway. And I think the bad 
feeling that it generates if you try and then extract money from people who are in an unhappy situation creates a bad reputation for you and that person will talk to others well call that magician you know he insists on the whole keeping the whole fee he'd done nothing for it and there's me you know i lost my job i had to cancel the party and he wouldn't give me the money back not good pr is it so that's why i've never in- included a cancellation clause because i have no intention of enforcing anything like that and as i say over the years I've had so few cancellations that it would have been a waste of time anyway. So do you have a cancellation clause? Have you ever thought about whether you would enforce it? Have you ever needed it? Is it really that important? You might like to think about that just in case it isn't. Another of the topics that the OCCC discussed was the situation, and I'm sure we've all been in this situation at some stage, where a group of close friends or maybe even extended family or something like that, they they ask you to do some magic for them. It might be for somebody's birthday or a special celebration, an anniversary, or it might be just as a get to family get together and they think it would be fun to watch some magic. And it's nice. It's nice to be asked. But there is a certain pressure or difficulty, I think, with trying to entertain people who you know very, very well and who know you extremely well too. Because when you go out normally when you perform, you you turn up at your group of people at a table or in a mix and mingle situation, you walk up to a group of people having a drink and the chances are you, you won't know any of them. I mean, if you work a lot locally, you may occasionally see people, but it's unlikely you're going to, to find somebody you know very, very well. And so they don't know you and you don't know them. And so when you do your performing personality, the version of you that you do when you're entertaining, to them, that is what you're like. And they accept you as the magician who does amazing things and who's funny, uh, perhaps, and, uh, and, and who's really, really interesting. They accept you at that level because they know nothing else about you. And you know very little or nothing about the audience, apart from the couple of things you might glean as you're with them. But you know nothing about them. So you don't know their background, what kind of day they've had. You know nothing. So you you don't have to take that into account. You just perform as you do for all the groups and you give it your all. And hopefully, you know, everybody has a good time. Now, when you're asked to entertain family and friends, suddenly all of this uh, kind of goes out of the window really because you they know you very well and you know them extremely well too so it changes the relationship once you start to perform if instead of being the normal you you suddenly go ding and you kind of switch on as if you're I think if you're a good performer you you should do when you entertain then if you start to switch and you become they suddenly see a different side of you which they may never have seen before they don't react or respond to you in the normal way that an audience might because they know you they're very familiar with you so they might they might give you a hard time in the way that that normal lay people wouldn't do when they watch the magic or they'll they'll interrupt you or or in some way try to disrupt you just for fun perhaps But because they know you, there's no reserve there. And from your point of view, so you're you're entertaining them and you're having fun and you do the stuff. When you get to the end of that show, 
although you might sort of switch on, switching off your performing personality and just becoming you again, it if well certainly to me anyway, it feels a bit odd. In fact, I I try to avoid performing for family and friends if I can possibly avoid it. Some of my friends have virtually who I've known for decades have hardly ever seen me do anything live because I I they don't ask me and I don't offer it. Um, and the only time they see me is when I they happen to be attending an event that I'm performing at. Then, of course, they do get to see it. But it's not just a close family group. This is in more of a, a big, normal, commercial situation, a dinner or something like that. So I'm in my my performance mode, and they understand that because I'm not just talking to them. I'm talking to all the other guests as well. And so they, they naturally make allowances, and they don't tend to interact much with you because they because there are other people sitting around the table or in the group. So it's different. But when you have something very intimate, say at home, uh, where there's just a small group of people together, when you get to the end of your show, and what I do if I on the few occasions when I have performed is I will go out of the room before I start to go and get my stuff. And I'll stay out of the room for five or six minutes. Even if it doesn't take me that long to get ready, I'll wait. Then I'll come back in as... Not with a da-da, literally, but come back in as the performer me. Do my performance, however long it's going to be, 15 minutes or whatever. And then immediately I'm finished, I'll go out of the room again. And I'll stay out of the room for another five or six minutes. You know, put the stuff away, but, but just keep out of the way. So that they can discuss the magic, A, without me being there. Because uh, and, and, they want to talk about it quite often. And so, I never knew he did that. Or... God, he's really different, isn't he, when he performs? They can talk about it and they want to talk about it, but it's kind of awkward if you're still there. So I stay out of the way, and then when I come back in the room again, the moment has passed, and and I can be just me again and not the performer me. And that's the way I've dealt with it. And, and we discussed this in our group, and, and we all we all had similar feelings of, of uh, slight discomfort about performing for people that, that we know. And in fact, in, in a funny sort of way, it kind of makes you more nervous or on edge performing for people that family or friends or people you know well than it does with, with strangers. It's almost as if you're you're worried that they will judge you as the the performer you because they know you so well already and they can see the changes. So it's interesting, isn't it? If you've ever performed for family or friends, um, how have you found it? Have you found it to be difficult, or do you just get on and do it? I've always been fascinated by the process of creating new magic material. Uh, I've done it all my working life and uh, and I really enjoy the, the progression of, of an idea from its initial conception through to sometimes, in my case, a marketed product that others can use. And so how you actually start the, the creative process is something I've thought about quite a lot. And in fact, a few years ago, and it's still available, uh, I published the book, A Simple Guide to Creativity, in which I tried to demystify the process of creating or adapting magic and take away all the all the difficult concepts and replace that with practical steps that uh, you can use to, to try and be a bit creative yourself. And at the moment, um, I'm reading a book called Creating the Impossible, which is by Chris Wardle and James Ward, with a view to re doing a v review for Magic Scene. 
And and in the be- at the beginning of that book, there's quite an interesting sort of um, conversation in inverted commas between the two of them about which is it best to start the creative process with? Is it better to start with an effect or is it better to start with a method? And I mean, I both have validity, but um, I wonder if there is one better than the other. And they discuss this backwards and forwards. Uh, and I'm not sure that they that they think there is a better one, but it's an interesting intellectual exercise, I think, to consider it for a few moments. Um, I think for me, most of the time these days, I start with an effect. I, I, I kind of do a, a what if. Uh, what if I could make this turn into this? Or if I could get that to happen, how would I do it? So I start with the effect and then I start trawling through my mind and think about the various methods that I know, see if there's anything that will fit in order to create the, the trick that I want to create. And I start to admit that. Po- and sometimes I can quite quickly come to a good solution because I have a lot of options in my head that I can use to come up with a method that works. And obviously with experience, you, you can short track a lot of the um, the, all the necessary bits in order to get to a solution quickly. But there are occasions, of course, when you're, for instance, shown a move. And I've done this in the past as well. You're shown a move. So effectively, it's a method. But there's no trick. It's just a move. It might be a card move, a coin move, whatever it is. And you think, oh, well, that's a good move. What could I do with that? So then starting with the with the method, if you like, you think, right, what effect... What object can I use and what effect would that create? And you can then start to work towards an effect. Now, now I did this with, with one of my marketed routines. Um, uh, the borrowed ring on pencil started in this way. I had a, a move for getting a ring onto a pencil. But I didn't have a, apart from that move, an actual way of doing it. I didn't have a trick. And so starting with that move, I I worked outwards and created a three-stage routine. Now with this, I did basically start with the method, although I needed actually a couple of other methods because I had three different moves. But nevertheless, it was the thing that started me on the process in the first place. But generally speaking, um, I do tend to start with the effects. I think the problem with starting with a move or a method is that there is the danger that you won't think outside the box enough because you've started with the method and the method is important or the move is important all you do is concentrate on the method and the move and you're not thinking about too much about what would happen if you didn't use that move but used another move I mean it doesn't mean you have to work like that but there's a danger that you might because that's why you start on the whole thing in the first place whereas with an effect where you say I'd like to be able to make this happen because you're not locked into any particular method, sometimes you get to a method that requires the effect to be changed and you will do that because you can't achieve the original effect that you had in your, your sort of fantasy effect. You actually can't create it. It's impossible. So you don't have a method you can use. So therefore you have to change the effect. So for me, I may be wrong about this, but I feel like the starting with the effect it gives you slightly more open-ended versatility but of course it's just the way your mind works isn't it Um, starting with methods or moves in particular can be very fruitful and uh, people like Jay Sankey are masters at this they'll they'll get a move or or a particular idea and then they're working from that 
he will create 25 different uses for it. And he's so creative and so is able to think at tangents so well that he will shoot out uh, into all different directions, starting from the basic premise of the method. So it just goes to show if your mind works in the right way, you can do it. But uh, why don't you think about that for yourself? I mean, what do you do? If you were going to start with creating something new, would you start with the effect or would you start with the method? Now, I've seen it written and indeed heard it said in lectures on occasions that it's important when performing to get to the big magic moment as quickly as possible. And it's generally considered that that is the best way to go. People these days have short attention spans, we're told. They can't concentrate for long periods. And so if you if you go through a lot of build up and a lot of process in order to get to the, the climax of the effect, then all you're doing is boring people and dragging something out that doesn't need to be dragged out. Now, I can see that in, in certain situations and, and indeed in, in certain types of effect, this could be true. Mentalism suffers from this sometimes. It's a particular bugbear of mine that, that with some mental effects um, make it so complicated to get to the moment where you prove that you could read their mind or that you, your prediction was correct or whatever it is. But that process itself is so drawn out that it really isn't entertaining and it, it, it isn't worth watching. It's just process, rolling of dice, putting things in envelopes or whatever it might be. It doesn't always make for a, a good watch. But having said all that, there are lots of effects where getting to the magic quickly would be completely the wrong thing to do, surely. I mean, an example of that might be the finger chopper. I've done the finger chopper for years and uh, I get a lot of fun out of the finger chopper. The actual magic of the finger chopper, where the person's got their finger through and you hit the blade and it penetrates their finger, is over in a second. And if you were just to get somebody up and say, put your finger in there, bang, done, then it wouldn't have any impact. It's all the build-up that leads up to the moment where you hit that blade that actually makes the magic itself certainly more entertaining if, if the presentation is funny enough and usually with these sorts of things there's an element of danger but also a lot of comedy can be got from that danger and so to string that out in the right way with lots of funny lines and you go to do it and then you don't and you pause for a moment and it heightens tension and so on it's absolutely the right thing to do and getting to the magic quickly would be the wrong thing to do but even if the end of the trick doesn't rely on a build-up of tension like the finger chopper does, obviously comedy magicians would say, well, all the build-up to what might be a relatively short magical effect, the comedy that you get with a spectator up, perhaps the lines that you use, is all part of the entertainment. And to take that out and just to do the trick in its barest form, although you get to the trick quickly, would not be as effective. And I absolutely agree with that. If the presentation is is funny, engaging, and is part of the journey, the journey itself is what makes the whole thing so much fun for the audience. And the magic is then, at the end, just to round it off. That, I think, is totally justified. It's when it's process, where it's not entertaining, where you simply have to go through a, a long, involved rigmarole in order to get to the magic, 
that's the bit that you want to get rid of not the entertainment and i think there's a you know there's a certain danger if you misinterpret what people are saying when they say get to the magic quickly that you could actually um ruin some tricks by getting to the end too quickly I've talked before on these podcasts about a couple of online magic show sort of agencies, if you like. Um, Bark, one is called, and the other is called Add to Event, which um, help the lay public to find magicians for their particular event. And all people need to do is they go to the website, they fill out the details of what they have in mind just once. And then all of us who are registered with these particular online agencies, then if it's relevant to our area and to our particular um, type of show that we do, we'll receive details and we can respond and put forward a case for the person booking us. It's a way of of, um, using the clout of a big website, of course, to send potential customers to us. And... um, The way that they make money out of it, of course, is that they sell you credits. And each time that you respond to an inquiry, it costs you so many credits. So, uh, I mean, it's it's fair enough. It's it's a reasonable system. In a way, it's almost replaced the um, sort of normal theatrical agent where people used to would go to an agency and would say, well, we're looking for a magician. They would look on their books. Well, this now is taking this online and taking it a stage further because it allows almost anybody who registers with them to quote for shows and to get inquiries. Now, although it sounds like a good thing, and in some ways it is, in other ways it's not, because unfortunately what tends to happen is um, it tends to drive, I think anyway, drive fees down. Because what will happen is, and Bark is particularly bad with this, because I've mentioned before that, that Bark actually puts for the customer to see suggested bands of price that they might expect. Um, And I think this is disingenuous because they are not accurate prices. And there's, there's, I don't, I fail to see how they know what is going to be the right price or what is even a reasonable price. And all it does is sets up, I think, false expectations in the customers when they see, oh gosh, I can have a magician all evening for a hundred pounds or something. It's just ridiculous. Add to event doesn't do that, which is to their credit. But because it's very a very easy way for people to make an inquiry, they tend to, because all they have to do is they just find the website, they put their details in once, they send it off, and then they could get back six, seven, eight different quotes. So for the just doing it once, they get eight quotes. And if they're interested in finding the cheapest, it's very simple. You just look down the list. Okay, that one's the cheapest. We'll have him. Now, the problem with this is clearly that if people are going to buy for the cheapest, they're going to compare and find the cheapest price. If you're not at the bottom of the of the pile in terms of fees, you, you're not going to get many shows, or at least potentially you're not going to get many. But... Um, the other thing about this is that in, in terms, it makes the customer, the bookers, if you like, a bit lazy because if they didn't have that website and they had to try and find a magician, they would probably do a Google search in their local area for the type of magician they're looking for. And then, of course, all our individual sites would then come up and they would have to go to the various sites and have a little look, see what whether they like the look of the person, what the person said. They would then have to either send an email to that person 
or fill in their online form in order to, to get an inquiry. And you'd have to do this individually and separately for each person that you wanted to um, apply to. So the average person is not going to do six, seven or eight of these, I would suspect. They'll probably do a couple, maybe three. Whereas if they do it through Add to Event or, or a Bark, for, the, for just doing it once, they can get a whole hatful. And, and so that means that every time that we as entertainers put in our quote, we are always going to be competing with perhaps far more people than we would have been quote, quoting against had it just come directly off the web, perhaps, because it would have been semi-selected already rather than just be one of a whole list. And here's the rub of it. Because the people haven't who go through these agencies, they don't know in great detail what each of the magicians actually can, can perform and what their levels of experience are, really. I mean, yes, there are details there, but they're relatively brief. They don't look at a complete website, perhaps. Because of that, then they simply are drawn to, well, you know, they all say the same thing. So perhaps I'll get the cheapest or get the middling one or whatever. It, it comes down to comparing something that you can't actually compare because no two magicians are the same. They have different levels of experience. They offer different types of, of quality of service uh, and performance standard. So to just look at the prices, unless you don't care about the standard, you just want to get the cheapest one. Uh, it's not a very good way to, to choose someone for a, an important event. And I think as, as a result of this, um, because you're always competing with, with more people than you would normally um, be likely to do, it, the temptation is, if you don't get bookings, might be to start putting your prices down, trying to find the price point at which people start to bite. And if they're comparing with eight other magicians, that could turn out to be very, very low. So I, I, I'm not sure whether I like these or not. On the one hand, they do give you the inquiries and give you a chance to, to get in contact with people who might not otherwise have made an inquiry with you. But as the disadvantages that I've just, I've just uh, explained, maybe that's not necessarily a, a good thing. So have you ever used either of these agencies? And what are your experiences? Do you like them? And have you done a lot of work with them?